this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode in china the winner has taken all after obtaining an unprecedented third term chinese president and communist party general secretary xi jinping has packed the politburo standing committee with his own nominees she has emerged as king and kingmaker from the just concluded party congress in beijing it was expected that the current premier would stay on in the powerful standing committee but she has had his way six members are of his choice many of the new entrants having worked closely with the president in the past the seventh member of course is she himself Apart from achieving full control of the party and government, she has also packed the powerful Central Military Commission with his nominees. The president has also promoted three generals who served in the Western Theater Command, which borders India with key posts. So, what are the takeaways from the Party Congress? How will it impact China internally and the rest of the world? Will it mean business as usual with India, or will there be departures? Joining me from Beijing to put the Party Congress in perspective. is the hindus china correspondent anand krishnan who has been covering the deliberations welcome to the in focus podcast anand thank you so much amit so anand the obvious uh, question you know you've been writing extensively on uh, the deliberations of the congress and the run up so did the expected happen well amit i would say yes and no uh, yes in the sense that i think everybody expected xi jinping to begin a third five year term which of course is quite unusual in chinese politics when you look at the last 30 years and you had his two predecessors follow the term limits but of course that's something we expected after he abolished the term limits in 2018 i think amit the scale of his sort of triumph at this congress was unexpected in the sense that uh, even in chinese history even in mao zedong's time you had a different power centers at the top of the communist party and politburo i would say i mean it's probably the first time in modern chinese history in recent chinese history that uh, the top of the communist party is entirely uh, populated by one person and his network people assumed maybe that li keqiang the outgoing premier would stay on or other officials close to li keqiang and former president hu jintao uh, would get some post but it's a clean sweep i mean there's absolutely no space in the top leadership for people associated with hu jintao or former president jiang zemin it's a one man show and that's a very new situation for chinese politics so we also saw and quite an unprecedented scene when um, you know former general secretary hu jintao was in a sense escorted off the stage so uh, uh, is the media reading too much into this or should the media be reading something on this well it's it's something that was really dramatic so i think it's understandable that the media would focus on it it's something you just don't see uh just to sort of give some context uh, into what happened the media and myself included were just uh, allowed into the closing session the voting had just been completed for the members of the new central committee and hu jintao along with other party delegates had participated in the voting uh, they were only to open the last session for us where you have a a sort of voice vote uh, to pass the final resolutions 
where Xi Jinping asks if there are objections and you, as, as you expect, everybody says no, and then the Congress ends. So we were allowed in for the last part, but what was surprising is just as we were allowed in, you could see Hu Zintao being taken, escorted off the stage, uh, and the Congress completed with uh, with an empty seat next to Xi Jinping, and Hu Jintao's name was still be- was still very much there on the table. So I think the plan certainly was that Hu Jintao would stay till the end, as he did in the previous Party Congress in 2017. Now we can only speculate why he was taken off. The videos that have emerged on Monday, October 24th, uh, that led uh, that showed us the moments leading to his removal, uh, paint a confused picture where what you see is uh, Hu Jintao in conversation with an official uh, called Li Jianshu, who is a highly ranked official in the outgoing Politburo sitting next to him. Uh, Hu Jintao does appear a little confused. Uh, he appears intent on picking up a paper that's in a red folder placed in, in front of every official, but the other officials try to seem to be telling him not to take it out. Uh, there's a confused exchange following which Xi Jinping very clearly asked an aide to come on and escort Hu Jintao off stage. So the two readings to this, Amit, one is whether he was in a state of disorientation. Uh, there's been lots written and reported about his ill health. Uh, and the second is that he may have had issues with the lineup uh, that was mentioned in the papers and the fact that his own allies were excluded. We'll never know which one of the two it was. But what we do know is that Xi Jinping wanted no disruptions to the final session uh, and they found Hu Jintao's behavior, whether it was because of health or whether it was because of political reasons, they found it to be a risk and they had him removed. So in that sense, Amit, it's extremely dramatic and something that probably only reinforces what we know in terms of this being Xi Jinping's show, no space uh, even for former leaders to have a say in how the party is being run, which again is a very new situation in Chinese politics. So basically, they didn't want to take any chances. I think uh, that would be my reading of it. Again, uh, we don't quite know what was said, but it was very clear that he was meant to be there for the final session. The idea that he was taken seriously ill, uh, which is what the state media said, doesn't seem to hold ground given that uh, maybe he was in a state of disorientation and confusion. But the other point, I mean, that I think a lot of people that I know in Beijing were struck by, and I think this is worth highlighting, is that even if he was ill, uh, whether it was ill physically or otherwise, the fact that nobody on that stage even got up to show any any sort of uh, respect to a former leader or assist him, the fact that people were just sitting stone-faced without any empathy or concern was something a lot of people in China noticed, at least people who've seen that video. In that sense, I don't think the leadership came out looking very good in this whole episode. So, Anant, uh, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, earlier that uh, this is really unprecedented, the kind of power that has been, uh, you know, concentrated in Xi Jinping and now his close associates. So, so what does this mean? Because China, after all, is a big country. And, you know, it has many regions. It has a huge population. It is very diverse, uh, you know, in, in terms of its geography, in terms of its culture. So how, what does this say? I mean, does this bode well for the Communist Party and China? I mean, this kind of centralized control by one man and, you know, his associates, in a sense. I think you're right in describing China as diverse. We should point out the top 25 Politburo of the CPC is all from the dominant Han ethnic group and all male. There isn't a woman on the top 25 for the first time in 25 years. Just a note in terms of the diversity of the top leadership or lack thereof. Uh, the, the logic, at least as the Communist Party puts it, is that they felt that at least until 2012, when she took over, uh, that power was too diffuse, which led to 
sort of a paralysis in decision-making and too much bureaucracy. It led to fiefdoms in the military, fiefdoms in governance, provinces being administered without following the central lead. So these were things that were no doubt some genuine problems uh, that were there in Chinese governance. Um, but I think that people would say the corrective probably has taken it to the other extreme. After all, one reason uh, China was able to develop so well under Deng Xiaoping was the idea that people would be allowed to experiment at the local levels. It was actually decentralization that propelled the Chinese economy and propelled growth, allowed for experimentation. I think that it's very clear looking at uh, what has come out from the party congress, from the work report, uh, from the amendments to the Chinese constitution, that they see no space for this kind of autonomy at the local level. Uh, and everyone has to sort of fall in line. Uh, the official Xinhua News Agency uh, said on October 24th, after the new leadership lineup was, was uh, announced, that the biggest factor for choosing new leaders was loyalty. Uh, so this is, this is the kind of sort of direction in which China is heading, where everything is uh, based upon following the center. Uh, if the argument is this makes for good party unity, it makes for more efficient uh, top-down governance. The flip side, of course, Amit, is you don't have uh, policies that might better suit local conditions as they need. Uh, and I think that that's something that concerns a lot of people here in terms of the Chinese economy, in terms of governance, uh, how that's going to go forward when uh, another consequence of the summit is I hear from bureaucrats, I do hear that uh, there is a sort of a concern and fear of not doing things wrong. So you you have less sort of situations of people taking initiative uh, because the concern more is about follow, falling in line and doing what you think Beijing wants. So I think that's a big change in Chinese governance. We have to see which way uh, it pans out, whether it is as Beijing sees it, it makes things more efficient, or whether it is as critics see it, that is going to lead to actually the opposite result and kill the kind of uh, governance innovations that allowed China to prosper in the first place. So Anand, uh, you, you know, uh, we, uh, I mean, the fact that we've spent so much time discussing this escorting of, of Hu Jintao shows that, uh, you know, it is quite an inscrutable structure that rules China. So would you say that with this one faction, you know, uh, you know, garnering all the top posts, does that necessarily mean an end to factionalism? Or is it that the factionalism will sort of go you know, it will become a bit subterranean or underground. I mean, after all, it is a big country and it is a big party and, you know, people have differences of opinion. They don't like each other sometimes. So w what is your sense of what will happen on that score? As you said, it's uh, it's quite opaque in a black box. We don't really quite know. But I think that uh, even if factionalism might not go away, you will see an end to factions as we understood it. By that, I mean a faction that was associated with uh, the Communist Youth League, uh, that uh, the people that, uh, that grew through the party. I think the best way to understand factions, uh, I think it's important to stress that they're not formal arrangements by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, fact, they aren't defined very clearly. And I think sometimes too much is made of factions. But what it is, is it's uh, very much a patronage network where you rise through the party under someone. Uh, and then there are other people who rise under you. Uh, and as that carries on after many years, you obviously get a network of people who've risen through the ranks together. And I think that's how you kind of understand what a faction is. And I think the factions as we know them perhaps may cease to exist. I think certainly you saw that with the early retirements of Li Keqiang, who was the outgoing premier. 
as well as Wang Yang, who was the vice premier. And he was, uh, people thought he was in line to succeed Li Keqiang, as usually a vice premier becomes a premier. But that's another precedent that Xi Jinping has, has sort of broken. So with their early exits, and both of them were known to be officials who were close to Hu Jintao and had careers in the past in the Youth League. I think the Youth League network has been completely decimated and is no longer of any significance. So I think that people would probably no longer, it wouldn't make sense for people to now associate a Youth League faction existing within the Communist Party. Similarly, you also had obviously officials who had risen through the networks of Jiang Zemin, the former leader, who is now extremely old and behind the scenes, and we don't quite know the extent of his influence. But certainly, the personal appointments suggest that he really isn't active in current politics. So you would think that his network as well, perhaps, is no longer something that's relevant. But of course, going forward, it's only natural that you will have always within the party, even in Xi's Communist Party, you do have networks of people, whether it's uh, you have provincial networks of people or whether you have people who, for example, the aerospace faction is something that's been spoken of a little bit, people who've risen through that ministry. So I think you'll have factions that are evolving, but I think that the space they occupy politically is completely changed, given that at the top, at least, as you put it in your question, I think there's only one faction that matters at this moment, which is Xi Jinping and the people around him. So Anand, one other uh, point which I want to pick up with you, you know, you reported for the Hindu uh, that, uh, you know, three generals who served in the Western Theatre Command, uh, you know, which abuts India or is responsible for India, have been given key posts by Xi. And one of them has been made, if I'm not wrong, the vice president of the powerful Central Military Commission, uh, of which uh, Xi himself is the chairman. So what does this signal to you? Uh, I think uh, what the broader signaling is, uh, if you just look at the Chinese military and not even vis-a-vis India, the fact that uh, the return of significance of the army, uh, where there was a trend of a lot of top posts going as part of the PLA's modernization, uh, going to people from the Air Force and Navy. I think that coinciding with the LAC crisis with India uh, and since the Doklam crisis, actually, I would put both uh, in the same bracket from 2017 onwards. Uh, I think the fact that you had these three officials from the army and that two from the Western Command, uh, you had General He Weidong, who was uh, someone probably Xi, Xi Jinping sees value in because he was the head of the, the army of the Western Theater Command, and he later became the head of the entire Eastern Theater Command, which of course handles Taiwan. Uh, so for he has that dual value for Xi Jinping, which explains his double promotion. Uh, he was not a member even of the Central Military Commission, but he's now uh, inducted into the 25-member Politburo, which is now 24 members, actually. Uh, and he's one of the two vice chairmen of the CMC. The other vice chairman is an interesting story, uh, Zhang Yoshia, a general who's now 72 years old. Uh, he's a very close associate of Xi, going back apparently decades. Uh, he was supposed to retire, but the fact that he's been kept on and he will stay on till he's 77. So now Xi Jinping has his own people, even in the highest levels of the PLA, uh, to make sure that they fall in line. Uh, and I think that it shows the prominence of the army and especially the significance of the Western Theater Command as well. The current head of the Western Theater Command was appointed to join the 205-member Central Committee. Uh, so however things transpire on the border between India and China going forward in this term, I think one thing is very clear is that the chain of command is quite clear going right after Xi Jinping himself. 
Uh, and I think that's something that uh, it would be very clear to even people in India following military relations. If in the past uh, there were some suggestions that things were being done at the level of lower level generals, I think now it's quite clear when you have Western Theater Command uh, officers sitting on party bodies at the top, that it's a, it's a very sort of controlled decision making uh, that you're going to be seeing. Uh, you know, something of which additionally of interest, uh, I saw that uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi is going to take uh, a, a top position as far as foreign uh, affairs is concerned. He will replace probably, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, you'll have to help me, Yang Jichi. So he will be, uh, you know, quite important. So what is your sense on foreign affairs? I mean, first with India and then with the rest of the world. Is this going to be, you know, similar to what we've seen in the last five or ten years? Or do you think there's going to be a sort of departure uh, in this uh, current tenure of uh, or the new term of uh, Xi Jinping? I think there's certainly an emphasis on continuity. Uh, the fact that Wang Yi, as you mentioned, who was above the retirement age and he's 69 years old, was retained. Just like I'd mentioned, General Zhang Yoxia was also retained. So it seems that Xi Jinping is keeping people who worked with him in the last five years. So from that, I think you can surmise that there will be a broad trend of continuity. But one thing we should note is there's an emphasis in this party congress on this idea of a, what they call a fighting spirit and of a struggle. Uh, and fighting spirit was something that was even added to the Communist Party constitution as one of the amendments passed at the Congress, the others, of course, being related to Xi Jinping and his core status. But this fighting spirit also sort of ties in with Xi Jinping's own work report that he presented at the Congress, which really painted a picture of a world uh, which in the past was described as one offering lots of opportunities for China. But what Xi Jinping has done is reframed it as a world that offers opportunities, yes, but a world that is also full of threats. And he actually had quite dark language speaking of external uh, attempts to blockade and contain China, and speaking of the need for China to struggle. Uh, and I think there was a huge emphasis on China, uh, for example, building some amount of self-sufficiency in critical strategic industries uh, with the fear that the West and the US is going to cut off access to technologies. So I think there's a very sort of mood right now. Uh, I would say one difference is a very sharper contrast in how they're framing the external environment for China, uh, one which is not just, you know, waiting for China to come to the center stage, as Xi Jinping said five years ago, but one that's going to be full of obstacles. And he seems to be sending that message down through the military and diplomatic core uh, that he wants them to have this harder edge. And I think that's something we should really be looking out for in the next term. And what is your sense, I mean, uh, you know, towards the United States especially, is there going to be change? Because we've seen many times uh, that the U.S. and China have come to the brink of a conflict only to withdraw, especially because of the kind of economic linkages the two countries have. So you think we're going to see more of the same or, uh, you know, this decision, uh, or, you know, the Biden's decision on microchips and, uh, you know, the decision not to uh, allow, uh, you know, American nationals to work for American companies. That's quite a significant one. So uh, for Chinese companies. So what is your sense that are we going to see a full-fledged kind of, uh, you know, Cold War in a sense or whatever you call it, Cold War 2.0 between China and the United States? I think it's certainly, I would say we're in a new space and we aren't in that old area, as you mentioned, this old pattern of them uh, being in cycles where they have confrontations and then there's an, a, there's an attempt to patch up. You saw that with various administrations 
Uh, you saw that with the Obama administration. And then, of course, Trump kind of really changed the equation uh, with a confrontational approach to China, which, interestingly, the Biden administration has not only carried forward, but you would say probably added to. So it seems there's a very bipartisan and deep agreement in the U.S. that China is a threat and they must do what they can. As they very as a national security advisor Jake Sullivan put it very directly, they want to maintain uh, U.S. primacy. And in China, that's being read as an attempt to suppress China's rise. So I think that this is something that seems to be really solidified understanding in both countries. And I think that's a departure from the past where, to some extent, both saw you know, differences as being part of a cyclical nature. I think that's changed. So we should expect uh, this kind of confrontational relationship to continue. And I think that's also the language that comes through uh, in what Xi Jinping said himself at the Congress. He doesn't really name the U.S. because they usually don't name countries. But he did, when he spoke about uh, attempts to coerce, blackmail, blockade, contain China, I think everybody in the Chinese system knows that he's probably referring to the U.S., and the fact that he said it at such a high-level forum, I think it should leave no doubts about where the Chinese see the relationship with the U.S. going. Uh, and I think uh, that it's going to be very difficult to see a correction. But they will probably wait. Uh, to some extent, you've heard Chinese analysts speak about what happens in the midterm elections. Is Biden going to be weakened? Uh, but the fact is, I think Chinese analysts are also aware, regardless of who's in power in Washington two years from now, uh, that there is a bipartisan understanding on having this kind of relationship with China. And I think they seem to be gearing up for that in Beijing as well. Before I let you go, Anant, I want to ask you about uh, China's relationship with Russia. And, uh, you know, it looks uh, from a distance that uh, the Chinese, in a sense, have implicitly endorsed or, you know, looked the other way or, you know, tried to look the other way when it comes to, uh, you know, what Russia, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, what is your sense and how far are the Chinese willing to go, uh, you know, in propping up a Russia, which, uh, you know, seems to have taken a few military knocks uh, from the Ukrainian forces recently? I think there's a difference here, I mean, between what they've said and what they've done in the sense that rhetorically, you're right, where they've been very, uh, they haven't criticized anything Russia has done. And I think that they are looking at every relationship right now, whether it's Russia, even India to a degree, I think through the prism of their sort of all-encompassing focus on their rivalry with the U.S. So in that sense, I think for them, naturally, they see Russia as a very logical choice in building a partnership with in terms of what they see as their uh, conflict with the U.S. But the other interesting thing, Amit, is while they have said all of this, they haven't criticized Russia. They'll probably continue to protect and vote with Russia uh, in the U.N., which is something they've done. They haven't really stepped in in terms of anything substantial. In fact, uh, many of their banks and companies are very almost immediately abided by U.S. sanctions. They haven't made any effort or attempt to try and subvert U.S. sanctions and prop up the Russian economy. So there's a difference between what they are saying and what they are doing. And I think that a weakened Russia obviously is not going to suit them, given that I think they've seen Russia as a crucial partner when they... Uh, especially after the February visit of Putin to Beijing. Uh, I think the jury is still out on how much the Chinese were aware uh, of the scale of what Putin wanted to do. I think some people think that they felt that there was going to be a limited military operation, but not something that would end up the way that it did. Uh, and privately, you get the sense uh, very much like India, which is publicly stood with Russia. They feel that 
it was terrible timing given china's own economic troubles at home for the world to deal with this kind of external shock doesn't suit them in one bit so uh, in a way it's a kind of similar dynamic that you're seeing in india's approach to russia which is of course a valuable strategic partner that you won't criticize in public but of course privately there are frustrations with how things have panned out anand krishnan the hindus china correspondent thank you very much for speaking to the in focus podcast thank you so much anand in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon